It's always fun on these mornings when uh, when I get to preach because normally on a Sunday morning, if I'm leading the music, uh, I'm not a fortune teller and don't know exactly what Pastor Lou is going to say. But I know what I was going to say this morning as we're singing these songs. It's crazy that I'm just like, okay, my sermon's been preached three times already, plus the Advent reading, which also preached a sermon. So this is just going to re-emphasize the truth that's already been read about and sung about as God has brought it through His Word. So I'm excited. I love it when that happens. Um, Yeah, so we are in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Um, If you need to grab a Bible because you don't have one, there's some in the back. Uh, you might need it this morning. I do have a bunch of references that I'm not going to be able to put all of them up on the screen. Um, but we're going to move right into things because we do have some impending white doom coming today. So, um, did I hear a yay? Ah, okay. All right. Anyway, we'll press forward here. Um, again, we're in Hebrews chapter 6, and as we prepare this morning to, uh, to read and examine our text, I think we should first look at the context uh, leading up to this point. As we've studied, the author is writing this letter to a persecuted church, uh, Christ followers who come from a Jewish background, and as we've explored, there are some who are genuine in their faith, rock solid, and others who are imposters. And in the midst of this persecution, there seems to be this desire within the church to return back to the things of the Old Testament, the Old Testament Jewish rituals, practices, ceremonies. And the author is telling them, don't go that route. You don't need to go that route. Why? Because Jesus is better. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of those rituals, ceremonies, and practices. And their trust needs to be in Him and Him alone. He is the superior and all-sufficient Savior of the world. Better than the angels. Better than Moses. Better than Joshua. Better than than any other human high priest. The author makes this point in the first few chapters. And Jesus, our perfect high priest, He hasn't been appointed through Aaron's line, that is the Levitical line, but He's the priest after the order of Melchizedek, as we're told. We don't know a lot about Melchizedek, Yet, but, but next week we'll get into that a little more fully. We'll get a backstory on his significance and who he was. And the reason we don't know a lot about him now, I mean, you could know about him. We have the Bible. You can just read ahead to chapter 7. Um, but the reason we haven't learned much about him yet in our study is because in chapter 5, when the author gets into Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek, he then pauses and he takes his turn pauses a thought on that, and he moves into some reproof and exhortation. Because the author is concerned with the congregation's, congregation's spiritual dullness. Before he gets into all this Melchizedek stuff, he's got to take care of this. And he tells them that um, they've been taught the basics of the faith, the foundational truths of the gospel, but they haven't retained them. They haven't grasped them. They're not ready to move on to... Um, Solid food because they're still in need of of spiritual milk. And he doesn't want them to stay on milk. Milk's good for a little while. We all need it when we're babies. But eventually we need to move on to solid food. 
And that's what he's spurring them on to. He's spurring them on to maturity, spiritual maturity. And as true believers in Christ grow in maturity, there should come with that an ability uh, to identify those who are imposters. To identify in ourselves, am I growing or not growing? And as we looked at last week in what uh, Pastor, Pastor Lou referred to as the, the hardest passage to understand in Hebrews and possibly all of the New Testament, we saw the warning for those imposters, for those who have not put true, genuine faith in Christ. If you missed that message last week, uh, I really encourage you to grab a CD from the back, to go on our website, to check it out, because Pastor Lou broke it down in a very careful way and a very easy-to-understand way for really a very difficult text. So I encourage you to grab that, because proper understanding of this text is, is really important. See, there were these imposters. They looked, they looked like they were part of the church. They participated in the community. They said and did the right things. But when the rubber met the road, their true lack of faith was exposed. And the author gives a tough warning that those who have had such participation and fall away, there is no restoration to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, proper understanding, as I said, of this text is really, really important, especially as it pertains to our assurance of hope, which is what we're getting into today. See, this warning is not for those who have put their true trust and faith in Christ. As though you can go back and forth from, I'm saved, I'm not saved, I'm not saved, I'm saved, and it's just back and forth thing. This this is not the case. The author is issuing this warning to imposters, to false believers, Not those who it says in the illustration given last week. Not to those who produce a crop. This warning is for those whose fruit is that of thorn and thistles. Again, I encourage you to listen to the message from last week because there's no way my Cliff Notes version this morning is going to do it any justice whatsoever on explaining that text. And we landed last week not on that warning. We didn't just stay there. That, that would have been a fun ride home. Um, we ended with the assurance of better things. The assurance of better things. And the author tells the true believers, the true brothers, he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, that exhortation in verses 11 and 12 bring us to our text this morning. Our passage answers the question, well, what does it look like? Who are we imitating and why can we have full assurance of hope till the end? That's what our text answers for us this morning. So we can find out the answer to that together as we read Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. Verse 13, For when God made... A promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore to himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Uh, that's a little different tone than last week. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful passage of scripture we have before us this morning. Eight verses assuring us of God's faithfulness, trustworthiness, trustworthiness, and the hope we can have in Him. So we're going to break this passage down into three parts, answering the question, why can we have full assurance till the end? Because we have an example to imitate, we have an unchangeable God, and we have an anchor of the soul. And we'll pick things up here in verse 13. An example to imitate. Why would the recipients of this letter need a passage like this? Why do we need a passage like this? Because we, like the recipients of the letter, and like those before them, and those before them, going all the way back to Adam, we are a forgetful people. We're a doubting people. We are second guessers. We're constantly in need of reassurance. And unfortunately for all of us, we've either been on the receiving end of someone not following through, or we have been on, been the ones to not follow through. I think it's pretty safe to assume. Not, probably not either, either or. Both. We've done both. And as a result, we have this tendency to doubt. Not just doubt one another, but then we, we doubt God. We doubt His goodness. We impose our lack of trust on each other and on other people onto God. Forgetting He is good. Forgetting He is faithful. So the recipients of this letter, they're experiencing hardship. They're experiencing persecution. Their faith is being tested. They were inevitably experiencing some kind of doubt. They were going back to the ways things were, right? They're doubting Christ's finished work. That's why they needed this reassurance that Christ is supreme, that He is sufficient, that He is better. And so to emphasize what it looks like to trust God, the author uses a very fitting example, the person of Abraham. So the author, he he doesn't... He doesn't have to do much explaining of Abraham, right? We don't have a whole lot in these verses. He doesn't have to go into the whole backstory because he's talking to a Jewish audience. They would have been very familiar with the history. But for those of us who don't know all of Abraham's story, uh, I just want to go over that so we, we grasp the full picture on why this example is so fitting, not only for the church then, but for us now. Abraham's life was a roller coaster of trusting God. 
In Genesis 12, really the end of Genesis 11, but Genesis 12 is where we're really, really introduced to Abraham. And it starts with this promise that God gives Abraham as he calls him. And he tells them that I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God says to Abraham, like right out of the gate, it's a good way to start in your relationship with God. That's awesome. And you got to figure if you have an experience like that, that's going to blow your mind and you're probably never going to forget it. Well, Abraham needed to be reminded of that promise again in chapter 15 as his patience begins to wear thin. And he says to God, when, when am I going to have this offspring? I don't, I don't have any kids. How are you going to make a great nation? So God reaffirms that promise with the promise again, and this time through a covenant that he cuts. And he tells Abraham again, your offspring will be numbered like the stars in the skies. So he reaffirms that promise with Abraham in chapter 15. It's like, okay, well, now I've had this, the first promise. Now he's literally cut a covenant. I'm not going to forget. But then again, in chapter 17, Abraham needs a reminder of that promise. He needs a reminder of the covenant that God had made with him. Because he and Sarah take matters into their own hands. They don't have a kid yet. All right, well, it's time to just go ahead and figure out how we're going to make this happen. Um, so they take their own means, and through a servant girl named Hagar, they conceive a son who is born, and his name is Ishmael. He goes, he's taken into his own hands. So he needs a reminder again of God's promise. God gives it to him. Something worth noting in all of these passages is that with each moment of uncertainty... With, with each moment of doubt, God reassures. No, no, no. I know you're doubting. I know you're doubting. I'm still good. I still made this promise to you. And with each reassurance, we see Abraham's trust is rekindled. And there's also growth. There's a, there's a, a greater reliance on God after each time. And we've done this roller coaster thing ourselves. If we say, no, I'm, I'm always up here, stop it. We all go down. And then we come back up because of God's goodness. So eventually, 25 years later, after the initial promise was made to Abraham, uh, he and Sarah have a child. This child's name is Isaac. And that's a long time to wait. 25 years. They were 75 in chapter 12 when they left their land to go where God had called them to. So it's a hundred year, hundred years old they are. Imagine raising a newborn at a hundred years old. I mean, this would have meant nothing to me before having a child. Like, there's at a hundred? Are you kidding me? A half hour of sleep? Get out. <laughs> but God does it. The, he fulfills his promise, at least. He gives them a glimpse of the promise. We know the promise is greater than just Isaac. But God doesn't stop reminding Abraham of that promise after Isaac's born. It's like, see? Told you, I'm done. Peace out, I'll see you later. No. Isaac's born, and then God still needs to remind Abraham of his promise another time. But this time, not after Abraham fails and Abraham doubts. 
This time God tests Abraham's faith. And he tells him, take this son that you've waited 25 years for. Take him up to Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now this would be the moment where I would severely doubt and probably question, but Abraham doesn't. Abraham doesn't. He's grown. He's matured. He doesn't quarrel with God. He doesn't flee from God. He's seen God's faithfulness. So he saddles up, he takes Isaac on the hike of a lifetime, builds an altar, puts Isaac on, has the knife in hand, ready to sacrifice his own son. And the angel of the Lord says, Stop. Put down the knife. And a ram is provided as a substitute for Isaac. And it's in this moment that God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. It's at this moment that the author of Hebrews is referring to. And God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall have all the nations of the earth blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So like, there's a lot that leads up to that moment in Abraham's life. Abraham didn't start there. There was this journey. And this, what the author of Hebrews is referring to is the end of the journey. It's easy for to look at where someone ends and see the great example, but I think it's that journey where we really see the reality of the ups and downs. And that's why Abraham is such a fitting example of what it looks like to patiently wait and persevere in God's promises. It's because he's a fitting example, but he's not a perfect example. He's not perfect, right? Like, not at all. That's why we have Ishmael. He's not perfect. Abraham's life full of those ups and downs. He has those times of great trust. He has those times of his own reliance and his own crafting of ways to achieve his purposes. But in the end, what's constant is God's promise is still there for him, despite his doubt, despite his failure. And his promise is there even in his obedience. God's promise was still there for him. That's what makes the story of Abraham such a fitting example. So for those in the Hebrew church, and for us today, God's promise is still there for us. See, we know from our study in Galatians that the the offspring that was promised to Abraham didn't just mean Isaac. It pointed to Christ, the perfect one. The scripture promises that all who put their faith in Christ, repent of sin, and trust in his atoning work are children of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have the promise of eternal life, the promise of restored relationship with God. And in Christ, we are heirs to the promise that was even made to Abraham. And I just want to emphasize, as we're talking about resting in God's promises, the only promises we can rest in are the, the promises that God has actually made to us. Right? There are preachers out there who preach promises and assurances that God never gave. Great wealth. Perfect health. God doesn't promise that. What we can rest in is that God does promise that he works all things for the good of those who love him. Meaning that even as 
Life gets hard, and as tough as life gets, God is there, and he is working things out for his purposes, his plans, and for his glory, and that is for our good. God has a plan. He has not left us. That's the promise we can hold on to. We can't just make up promises in our head and then say, well, I guess God's going to do that. That's, that's our promise to ourself. It's not God's promise to us. So I just want to make that note, because I think we, we need to latch onto the right things of what God has actually promised us in his word. And we have so many good promises. And another note I want to make is, again, the author in this section, this reassurance, this hope, he's not talking to those who are the imposters. He's given them their warning. He's moved his attention. He's reassuring genuine believers. For those who have put their faith in Christ, in his finished work, God's promise is there. God's promise is yours here and now in Christ, but we need to wait to obtain it. See, there's this already and not yet aspect to the promises of God. What's promised is truly ours. If God says this is what you will get, this is what you're going to get. It's a promise. We can hold on to it. But for it to be fully obtained in its fullness requires waiting. See, with promise comes patience. With promise comes patience. Patience is something that is coming more and more contrary to our culture. We have one day shipping now. One day. Except, except now. Except this season. Now it's like Amazon Prime. Five day shipping. We're doing great. But we have instant, instant access to TV shows, movies, everything we want. Blockbuster, all in a tiny little stick you plug in your TV. Right? We're a need it now culture. But obtaining God's promises requires patience. Do we know those promises will happen? We do. But does that mean we've 100% made it to the finish line and we're there, obtained it? Not yet. A small example of this, this is just the way my mind works. I think of Disney+. Plus. I heard some giggles. People are familiar with Disney+. Plus. Okay. <laughs> Who isn't, right? Um, back in September, Disney released it for pre-order. They said, okay, starting now, it's available for pre-order, and will be available to you November 12th. But you can sign up. Um, for those of you who don't know, my daughter's a, a, a Pixar-obsessed little girl. Um, so Disney Plus was going to happen in our house. So in October, I signed up. Disney Plus account. Put in the credit card info, had a username, had the confirmation email. Disney Plus was ours. But could I download the app yet? I could not. Could I access the library of movies? I could not. I had to wait till November 12th. It was mine. I was a Disney Plus customer. <laughs> but I had to wait to enjoy the Disney goodness. <laughs> the promises of God are ours. And we, we actually experience their blessing. It, that's why the Disney Plus example is still not even a good example because we experience blessing of God's promises and His what he's given us, but to the, the fullness, the final outcome of that, we are still waiting. 
When God promised Abraham offspring of nations, it was fully assured that it was going to happen. From God's standpoint, it's, it's a done deal. This is happening. But Abraham had to wait. He had to walk by faith. He had to trust that God would keep his word. We're in the Advent season. This is what this is all about. A reminder of what it is to wait for God to fulfill his promise. As humanity awaited as Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. See, in Christ, we, we have the present reality of new life. We have forgiveness of sin. We have adoption into the family of God as sons and daughters. We have the love and affection of our Father in heaven. And we have a hope of eternity with God forever in paradise. Present reality of future hope. Yet, we need to constantly be reminded of this as we press on. Why? Again, we're forgetful. We need to be reminded so we don't become sluggish, so we don't become dull. That we would persevere with full assurance of hope. So we don't forget God's promises as life becomes too much to bear. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 1. Verses 3-9, through Peter tells this church, another church being persecuted. He, that is Jesus, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Does that sound like a maybe? That's not a maybe. That's, we're waiting for that definitely. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The inheritance is there. God isn't withholding it. It's a sure thing for those in Christ. So we may encounter trials. We may encounter hardships. But the finish, and the finish line may be further off than we want it to be. But the prize is there. We just need to patiently wait. How is what I'm saying true? How can we be sure of what is being said here in this text is true? How do we know we're not just patiently waiting on an IOU? The author tells us why. The promise is true because of who made it. So we've got an unchangeable God. Verse 13 here, we're reminded again of Genesis 22, where it says, For God reassured Abraham of the promise of God. He, he swears, by an, swears an oath by himself, right? He made a promise to Abraham. He had no one greater by whom to swear, and he swears by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And then he expands on, on what that, the significance of him swearing by himself really means in verses 16 and 17. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is for final confirmation. So when God desired to show convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So we see the distinction between two things. We have promises, we have oaths. They're connected, but a little bit different. A promise is just saying you'll do something. We make promises all the time. We break promises all the time. That's life in a sinful, broken world. A promise is something that is a declaration of something that will be done or will be happened. And when we make those promises, that's not necessarily a definite thing. When God makes a promise, it's a definite thing. And God promised to Abraham numerous offspring and a great nation. And God fulfills that promise. So that's what promises are. Then there's oaths. Oaths are reassurance of the promise. We swear upon something greater than our own word because we're human beings marred by sin in a broken world and sometimes our word just isn't good enough. We break, we break oaths too. We, we are batting a thousand in life. Um, as I thought about promises and oaths, I, I thought about something, a similar thing, a pact. Um, sometimes people make a pact. It's a, probably more closer to a contract. But I'm reminded of a time when there was a pact between two friends, close friends. They were going to change their ways. They were going to become more committed to their relationships. That is what they were going to do. And one day in a corner uh, coffee shop, they shake hands on it. One followed through, got engaged, committed. One didn't. And this is the conflict that arose. We just got a quick video for you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What about the pact? What? What happened to the pact? We were both going to change. We shook hands on a pact. Did you not shake my hand on a pact? You stuck your hand out, so I shook it. And we had a pact, you know. <laughs> what? You shook my hand in that coffee shop. You still with the pact? Mm-hmm. You reneged. All I did was shake your hand. <laughs> There's no real significance to me having that video, but you know I have to make a Seinfeld reference. And George going, aha, is just great. But that does illustrate that we may shake hands on something, we may promise something, and still not follow through. Sometimes a handshake is just doesn't cut it. So that's why the oath was there. When we're mar- we get married, we take an oath or a vow before God, not just one another, before God, someone greater than ourselves. We take an oath to remain faithful and true to our spouse. Spouse. Doing that with the S's this morning. <laughs> like a snake. Going back to oaths. Those on trial, they take an oath, right? They put their hand on the Bible. I think they still use the Bible. Swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. You're swearing above something greater than yourself. There's more weight when we swear on something greater than just our own word. Otherwise, someone could just sit up there like, yeah, I'm going to tell the truth. You know what I mean? 
Dr. Michael Kruger from Reformed Theological Seminary, he gives a great example of this. He uses the example of a certified check. We go to make a big purchase. Car, down payment on a house, whatever it is. You can't just like whip out your checkbook and be like, huh. however, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, yeah, no, I'm good for it. Here's my check. If it's my check, my address isn't even like up to date on it. Like, how, oh, this guy's, yeah, he's going to pay me, that's for sure. Right? These places, they need reassurance that this check is not going to bounce. So you have to just, you have to get a certified check with that, that stamp, that seal, that approved. The money's there. It's going to be coming to you. That's, that's like an oath of sorts. The certification is swearing by something greater, in this case the bank, that the money is there. Oaths are there to reassure promises. So then, why does God make an oath? Was his promise untrustworthy? Not at all. God doesn't make the oath for himself. He knows he's faithful. He knows he's good. He knows he's going to follow through. He knows his word is true. We're the problem. We're forgetful. We, we doubt. We've gone over this, right? So what he does is he condescends down to our level and swears an oath for our sake, for Abraham's sake. He swears this oath to Abraham and to all the heirs of the promise, those in Christ, that he will fulfill his promise. But for an oath, you need to swear at something greater. Well, there is no one greater than God, so he swears by himself. He takes an extra measure to, uh, to provide added assurance to us. To those, the heirs of the promise, to those in Christ. Right? That's what it says. To show more convincingly to the heirs of, of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. God doesn't change. His purpose doesn't change. His promises don't change. God promised, as we, we heard in the Advent reading, Genesis 3.15, right, to bring forth an offspring who would defeat sin once and for all, crushing its head and bruising his heel. He continued that promise through Abraham. We see that culminate in Christ. Yes, I'm fast-forwarding over a lot. But God's purpose never changed. It was always the redemption of mankind, the rest- restoration of all that is broken for his glory. We can trust God's promise. We can trust God's oath. Why? Because of these two unchangeable things. He gives these two unchangeable things, His promise and His oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we can trust the promise. We can trust the oath. He gives us those two unchangeable things. And we can trust it because... Of God's very nature. He cannot lie. It's not just that it's improbable that God can lie. Like, God probably won't do that, right? It's impossible for God to lie. If God were to lie, he would cease to be God. And he would be no better than any of us. Our assurance of hope is rooted in the character of God. Why does this promise matter? Why does this oath matter? Because he in his very nature is trustworthy and faithful. 
That's why we can trust the words of this book. It's His word breathed out, given to us. When it speaks, God speaks. We can trust what He says. When He makes a promise, He's going to keep it. When He swears by Himself that promise is true, we can know full well He's going to keep His word. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that we would know that it's true. And in verse 18, the author uses a, 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 a phrase. And he's talking to the church and he says, We who have fled for refuge. It's an interesting phrase. There's some speculation on really what the author is referring to here when he says that. And remember, the church he's writing to is, is under persecution. He could be referring to their current situation as they have been run out of their homes. They, they're definitely a people in need of some physical refuge. But he uses the word we. Now, the, the author, he's not like just sitting in the middle of this writing a letter. He, he could just speak to them then. He's, he's somewhere else writing to them. So he's including himself in this phrase. So I believe that he has their current situation in mind. He's using a language they can relate to right then and now. Right then and now sounds weird as I say it. Right then and there. But I also think this language of refuge is extending further than just to the church he's writing. Broader than just the physical refuge that they would have needed. There's this need for a spiritual refuge in which all believers in one sense are those who have sought refuge from sin, from its effects. Our souls are in need of a refuge. A place where we can go that's safe, that's secure. I think that, that's what's on the author's mind when he says, we who have fled for refuge... We flee to our refuge in Christ. An actual refuge, city, building, some kind of a place, it's a, it shelters you, it protects you from danger. That's what he, he wants them to think of when he says, we fled for refuge. Where did they flee to? They fled to God. That was their refuge. I'm reminded of the story of the three little pigs, Right? If we take refuge in anything other than our unchangeable God, it'll be like a house made out of straw or out of sticks. It's going to crumble. We're left with no shelter, no safety. But our God is the house made of brick, firm, unshakable. No big bad wolf is going to blow down that refuge. And that's how the story goes. (laughs) Trust me, I know. Taking refuge in places that will crumble without much protection is not much of a refuge at all. It's a temporary fix. But how often do we do that? We're people who run to these these places of refuge that aren't God. We run back to the old ways as the church was doing. We're seeking refuge in, again, temporary fixes, addictions, vices, toxic relationships, even turning to good things and turning them into idols. To bring us some security and safety. 
But these are all houses built out of straw and sticks. They will not hold. God is our only true refuge, our strong encouragement. We can hold fast to Him and hold fast to the hope He's given us. And that hope is in the promises that He gave. If God changes in His purpose and changes His plans, we have nothing to hold fast to. It's it's shifting. But He doesn't. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We began our service singing this reminder, the Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. We sing it so we don't forget it. When our world is falling apart, when nothing seems to make any sense, we're tempted to run towards sin. We need to remember, God is our refuge. God is the hope that we can hold on to. He's bought us with a price. He adopted us into his family. He is our Father, and only he can help and protect us. He's unchangeable. We can hold fast to him, and he holds fast to us. Look at our last point, an anchor of the soul. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, if a refuge is a place where we can go to and be protected and find safety, an anchor isn't a place of protection, but but something that, that holds you firm. If a ship wants to stay in one area and not drift away, it needs a good anchor. One that will hold even in the midst of rough water. An anchor needs to be strong. It needs to be weighty. If it's too light, well, you've just dropped a useless tool. You're not going to stay put with a bad anchor. We don't have a bad refuge. We don't have a bad anchor. We have a sure and steadfast anchor. That is Jesus Christ. Some may know this, some may not. But the anchor was actually used um, as a Christian symbol back in the early church. Songwriter Michael Carr describes the history of the anchor like this. He says, The first century symbol wasn't a cross, it was an anchor. If I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or crucified and set ablaze as torches at one of Nero's garden parties... The symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is my anchor. See, our our hope is in the promise maker and, and the promise keeper. Worldly hope has no firm footing. It's not a sure hope. It's not a definite hope. But gospel hope is rooted in what's been promised by the trustworthy word of God and accomplished by the word made flesh. It's a sure hope. It's an anchor that we can hold fast to, that holds us, that holds us fast. Richard Phillips says that he, that is Jesus, sets the anchor of our hope with his own pierced hand so that our hope of salvation is attached by the finished work of Christ to the secure foundation of the unchangeable character of God. 
It's a hope that actually leads us to a place that was previously off limits, right? It says we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's being referred to is what was in the tabernacle or temple, this place called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, a place where the, pre- the presence of God dwelled. And the only one person could go in once a year, and that was the high priest. In Christ, that curtain is torn, and access has been granted to all who have trusted him. Jesus grants us access to the Father. He has gone in first, and we're tethered to him. He actually anchors us to that inheritance. Because not only is Jesus described as his anchor, but he's also the forerunner. This is similar to what we saw back in chapter 2, where it says Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Pastor Chris taught that pioneer, led the way. This is similar but different. This is the only time in Scripture this particular word is used. Prodromos. It's my next band name. <laughs> Lewis Talbot explains a forerunner like this. He says, The Greek harborers were often cut off from sea by sandbars which larger ships could not pass until the tide came in. Therefore, a lighter vessel, a forerunner, took the anchor, dropped it in the harbor, and from that moment the ship was safe from the storm, although it had to wait for the tide before it could enter the harbor. The entrance of the small vessel into the harbor was the pledge that the ship would safely enter the harbor when the tide was full. Jesus is both anchor and forerunner. He has gone before us, to, what was, to where it was inaccessible and has secured us there for we are secured to him. He has made the way. He has said, you will come into this place. Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek who not only enters the inner place but ushers his people in as well. Again, a future hope, present reality. We know Jesus has made the way, but we've got to wait for the tide to come in so we can arrive. Our future hope is dwelling forever and ever with our triune God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a promise we need to wait for patiently. The present reality is relational access we have. Because Christ is our high priest, we need no human intercessor between us and God. Christ is that for us. And we can bring our offerings, we can bring our concerns, our supplications, our confession of sin to God the Father because of what our high priest and forerunner has done. And we know because of his character that as we come before him, he is good, he is faithful, he is trustworthy. So we have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in Christ. Where is our hope this morning? Where is your hope, my hope? Is it in the unchanging, perfect, holy God of the universe? In the finished work of Christ on the cross? Or is it in what what you can do and what you can see and what you have control of? Our hope is in anything but Christ, we're in for a bumpy ride. We're going to be tossed to and fro by trials and tribulations, and we're going to have no 
foundation. We're going to have no anchor. We're going to have no refuge. If our hope isn't rooted in something bigger and better than this world, is it hope at all? Again, I say our hope needs to be placed in Jesus Christ. The promised one who left paradise, who condescended, who took on flesh, who dwelled among us, fully God, fully man. It's the Advent season. That's what it's all about. Born into this world to live a perfect life, blameless, among his own creation, to one day go to the cross and bear our sin to bear the punishment we deserve, to pay the penalty we owe. Not just dying, but also rising victoriously from the grave, sealing that promise. To bring us from darkness to light, from hopelessness into hopefulness. To bring us from heirs of destruction to co-heirs with Christ and heirs to the promise. That's where our hope needs to be rooted. That's our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We need to be reminded of this, lest we fall into doubt and despair and we grow dull. God is good. A simple truth. But it's so true. We regularly partake of communion together as a family. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness to us. As we said, God made a promise back in Genesis 3 that the curse of sin would be crushed. He fulfilled that promise through Jesus Christ. We remember that when we eat of the bread. His body broken for us. And the cup, His blood that was shed, establishing a new and better covenant. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us, And as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. We're proclaiming that future hope together as we remember the work that has been done. Relishing in the present reality of that hope and the future aspect of it as well. This table is for all who have put their faith and trust in Christ. So in a couple minutes, the band is going to play, and this is the time for inward reflection. A time... For us to respond to the truth that that God has revealed to us through his word this morning. And I think it's a time that we need to take and ask ourselves, where, where is our hope rooted? Are we confident in God's faithfulness? Or are we trying to go our own way? Are we trying to do our own thing? Are we trying to be our own God? Or are we going to trust the forerunner who made a way? Jesus Christ. This is a time to confess these things, to repent And once we've done that, it's a time to celebrate. It's an important aspect of the gospel. We celebrate forgiveness. The forgiveness we have in Christ. And that's why we come and we eat the bread and we drink the cup. We celebrate that we are forgiven. If you haven't made that choice, if you haven't trusted in Christ, we pray that today would be the day for that. But if you haven't made that decision, we also ask that you refrain from partaking of this table as it is for those who have put their trust and faith in Christ. But we want you to know Him. That no matter 
what your sin, how ugly it is, it can be forgiven and will be forgiven in Christ. That's a promise that if you put your faith and trust in Him, is yours today. That if you confess your sin, you repent and turn to Christ, you have a hope that is sure. There's no other that we can hold fast to who also will hold us. Jesus is our only true, sure, and steadfast anchor of the soul. So when we do take communion, it's a little housekeeping. We'll form two lines down the center aisle, and then we'll go out through these outer two aisles on either side. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. For the truth and the perfect assurance that we have in your word. When you speak, we know full well that we can trust those words. When you make promises, we know for sure you're going to keep it. And we just ask this morning that your spirit would impress that assurance upon our hearts. That when the gospel tells us we are forgiven in Christ, that we are your children in Christ... Help us to believe it and walk in it. We confess before you this morning that we've tried to take life in our own hands. We've sought hope in people and things we never should. We ask that you would turn our hearts away from our sin and that you would draw us near to you this morning. Let us remember the gospel as we partake of these elements. That once we were far off, but now you have brought us near. Once we were children of wrath, but now we are children of the promise because of what Jesus Christ did in his perfect life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection. We ask this morning that you would make us a people who walk by faith, not by sight. And it's in the name of Jesus, our sure and steadfast anchor, we pray. Amen.